Now, we didn't even get last week, we didn't even start the Sermon on the Mount officially, Matthew chapter 5. And remember, Matthew chapter 5 is where we will be the rest of the year up until we get into uh, Advent season or we spend uh, end of November, beginning of December, where we'll spend some time talking about Jesus and the incarnation. But we want to do all the rest of this year up until that point on Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be in what are called the Beatitudes. You heard Nick say that, the Beatitudes. And... uh, Jesus is redefining of how life is, what life should be like, what perspective his followers should have on the life that they live. So I want us to read that, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful to gather today and to hear the teaching of Jesus, our Savior. We are grateful that he has a different way for us to live, that he has a different expectation for us, a different hope and longing for us than we would ever have for ourselves. And we're grateful that the Word became flesh and the Word dwelt among us and we are able to see his glory. As we hear this teaching this morning, we would ask that you transform us. <clears throat> wherever we might be, in here, outside, online, uh, watching, participating, listening later uh, to the sermon, to the word, might you, God, use the words of Jesus to change us. Give us a hope in the world that is to come, and might that change us even now, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, are you guys probably familiar with the idea of pity? I pity the fool. Uh, or we feel bad for someone, or we just go, oh, I just feel so bad for them. Because, and we have all kinds of reasons that we might feel bad for somebody <clears throat> in this world. We're sorry that they are going through a hard time. And that's true. Oh, you're going through a hard time. I'm so sorry for you to be going through a hard time. Maybe we just don't like that they can't afford the things that they want. Oh, I feel so bad that you can't. Man, I'm sorry you can't go on that vacation or do that thing or uh, be in this environment. That's, that's un- unfortunate. Or we feel bad because they haven't... Uh, gone to some magical position in life that we think that everybody should live up to, that they haven't lived a certain way or achieved a certain level of uh, income or a certain level of independence. And so uh, they're just kind of, in our, from our perspective, trying to make it, but they just can't. We just feel, we feel bad that it just seems like they can't catch a break. <clears throat> we wish maybe people might have had what we have, or we feel bad about ourselves because we don't have what they have. And we just have this kind of weird feeling of like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I feel bad for you. 
And yeah, we're instructed in Scripture to weep with those who weep, but it's not like you just feel bad for those who don't have what you want or don't have what the world says is good or valuable. And we can certainly feel godly sorrow. Scriptures say that actually moves us to repentance. So godly sorrow is good. But there are also other things going on in our world that we have to remember are not what the Lord would have for us. Other desires the world would have for you, other plans that the world would have for your life, for your family, for your job, for your money, for your time, for your energy, for your attention, for your hope. They want you to be distracted. And God wants to give us, and always does as we read his word, a different way of understanding life. A different way of thinking about what he has given us in his son, and really God's world the kingdom that is to come, that should then us as citizens of his kingdom should inform how we live even in this world where we are strangers and aliens. I mean, consider for a second that we have brothers and sisters even right now, today, somewhere in the world undergoing persecution for their faith. And not persecution like they've been muted on Facebook. Not persecution like that. People who are losing life and limb for the cause of Christ. People who say, he is worthy. People who can scream out that my Lord and my Savior is worth whatever might come this way in this life, that I'm not concerned about what might befall me because Jesus is worth it. We have that going on in our world. And should we feel bad? Should we feel bad or pity on those? Jesus, what does Jesus say? Rejoice! Rejoice and be glad when others persecute you. <clears throat> That's not what we like to do. We don't, I don't want to rejoice. I want to feel bad or we want to see justice come in a certain way. And we go, well, Jesus gives us a different way to think about it, doesn't he? Jesus does not, does not say, hey, and blessed are you when others persecute you because they're going to get what's coming to them. Just you wait. No, he talks all about the position of the follower. Rejoice and be glad. Because this is what they do to people who follow me. This is just how it goes. Consider, for example, a statement from Elizabeth Elliot. She died uh, five years ago. Her husband was martyred. She spent the rest of her life teaching, instructing, training, discipling, and making the name of Jesus known. But I believe it was in the 80s she started to teach about suffering. And then that's been kind of compiled. All those lectures have been compiled into a book you can grab now called uh, Suffering is Never for Nothing. But this is one of her quotes. Suffering is never for nothing. If your faith rests in your idea of how God is supposed to answer your prayers, your idea of heaven here on earth or pie in the sky or whatever, then that kind of faith is very shaky. It's bound to be demolished when the storms of life hit. But if your faith, faith rests on the character of him who is eter- the eternal I am, then that kind of faith is rugged and will endure. This is somebody whose husband was martyred for the cause of Jesus. And she doesn't say, run away. She says, if your faith is built on life here needing to work, then it's not going to last. It's on shaky ground to begin with. But if your faith is built on the truth of God and who he is and what he's doing, then that faith is rugged and will endure. 
You will always find, and especially as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, but you will find, and Jesus even teaches like this, right? He talks about narrow road and wide road, two ways. There's lightness and there's darkness. The early church really caught on to the two ways idea where you can either walk in the way of life or you can walk in the way of death. And they show this contrast time and time again. And as you go through Scripture, you will find that there's a way, a mindset that the Lord would have for his disciples to embrace. And the more you walk with the Lord and live with him, I hope this is the case, the more odd you feel living life here. The more closely you walk with him and the more you learn about him and the more you interact with other believers who are doing the same and trying to make Jesus the, the, the supreme goal of their life and their daily decisions, the more you do that, the more odd you feel. The, the more you love things that other people don't love. And the more you, your affections change and your habits change and your weekends change, the more bizarre you look. In fact, next week we'll see that. Jesus says... You live this out, you're salt and light, man. Like, your bizarre way of living stands out. But we have to remind ourselves here in Matthew 5 what a good life, remember that's the series title, is. And we look at a list of statements of blessedness, happiness. It's really a condition of the soul or the person, not a bestowing of gifts upon them an actual disposition, that you're blessed when you mourn, that you're happy, glad. Our culture has a way of communicating how you should live and what you should long for, and our Lord has another. And the Beatitudes show us that, because Jesus is teaching us in a way that is motivated by, dependent upon, the work of God in this world and the kingdom that is to come. Now, don't forget chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. I mean, what has he said? But... Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's showing people, right, in his teaching, we said this last week, and in his healing, he's showing people what this new world looks like and, and what it's going to be. He's doing the work of the Messiah. The Messiah heals and brings hope to those who are in despair. He mends people's lives. This is what he is doing, and this is what we're seeing, and this is how he is living. And so when you see the Messiah coming into the world, What's he about to do? But he's about to say, hey, listen, when the kingdom is at hand, it's going to change everything about how you think about life, and what you do, and what matters, what you should pursue, and what you should care about. And rather than trying to escape some type of feeling because the world tells you you shouldn't feel that way, no, embrace it because God's doing something even in that. So we will be looking at the Beatitudes, the uh, great happiness you heard, uh, as Nick was reading it with his kids, happy. And you might have some translations that say happy, because uh, when we think of blessed, we do. We think of it as a bestowal of something upon another. Like, if you're poor in spirit, then God gives you something cool. Or God you know, gives this to you. Or if you're meek, then you get to inherit the earth. Like, your blessing is that. But really, the condition is the happiness. The fact that you're there. You get to exist there. Uh, if you read, it's, uh, his name's Jonathan Pennington, but he has a, it's a theological commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It came out a couple of years ago, and it's titled actually The Sermon on the Mount um, and Human Flourishing, because what he's looking at is Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing you this is what life's like. 
This is how you're supposed to live. A life that is lived to the fullest because it's rooted in God, it's made alive by God, and it has a totally different playbook than the world has. The world's calling one set of plays, and Jesus has a totally different set of plays for his followers. So as we start this sermon proper and we get into the Beatitudes, we're going to see that Matthew's starting, even in the first two verses, because we're actually going to spend a good amount of time in the first two verses before we even get to the statements of blessedness about what's happening. We'll see what Jesus is revealing in these first two verses and what Matthew's showing of Jesus, and then we get into these statements of blessedness. Now first, and this might not seem like that big of a deal, but you need to recognize that Jesus is teaching, he's teaching a new way of living from the mountain, or he's te- you know, he's, that's his teaching, from the mountain. Now I want you to clue in on the part where he says a new way of living from the mountain. Because last week we spoke about, spoke about how Matthew's showing Jesus as the Messiah. Look, he fulfills this, he fulfills this, this was done to fulfill that, this was done to fulfill that, this was done to fulfill that, this was done to fulfill that. And now we have, and this is not uncommon, you know, like, like New Testament times, the Jews who were leaders and teachers would have disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. So religious leaders would have people who would follow them, and these people would teach. And their disciples would gather around, not like this, you're not my disciples, but they would gather around and the rabbis would teach and they had different schools. And so what Jesus is doing in instructing people about stuff is not new. It's not like he's come up with this new way of teaching. He's instructing the ways that rabbis instructed. But there is something a little different with what is going on here. Matthew 5, 1 and 2, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. He didn't stay where they were. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and that's when he begins. Now, where are they? They're on a mountain beside the Sea of Galilee, but if you're familiar with mountains in the Old Testament, what happens on mountains? God shows up. God shows up on mountains. Jesus is teaching from the mountain, and what the next, after we get through salt and light next week, the rest of chapter 5, Jesus is showing the heart of the law. He actually says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he starts teaching. You've heard it say this, but I say that. You've heard this, but I say this. You've heard this, but I say that. And really what he's doing is he's expanding what the intent of the law really was. But what do our wicked hearts do? But they say, well, okay, you know, right? we're like a lawyer. You said not to turn left on Thursdays. So that means every other day I could turn left, right? I mean, that's what you want. Right? So we look and we kind of splice it, and that's what the religious folks were doing at the time. We go, okay, well, what's going on here, and how can we be sure we do only what it says? And Jesus was then taking it, and he was going, no, I don't just mean don't murderers and take somebody's life. If you even look angrily at your brother, you've committed murder. So what is Jesus doing as he gets through the rest of this sermon, especially in chapter 5, but he's starting to show you the heart of the law that no one has been able to live out except for him. So we're getting a different understanding on what Jesus' power is and what his life is, and he is the Messiah. But regarding mountains and law, consider Exodus chapter 19. Chapter 19, verses 1, 2, and 3. Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Moses is there. If you remember, Moses has to go up to the mountain. He receives the law. He brings it down to the people. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. 
They set out of Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness and Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So Moses goes up, Moses gets instructed by God, Moses comes down. The Lord speaks to Moses on the mountain. The law was delivered from the mountain, but only Moses was with the Lord on the mountain. But what do we have here? Jesus, Israel's Messiah, teaching his disciples face-to-face from the mountain, explaining to them what the heart of the law really was. His disciples are there. Not some intermediary but he's actually instructing them. And you can go throughout the Old Testament and you will find both positive and negative examples of God on the mountain. You'll find high places where they set up these, you know, these other ways to worship idols and God wants those destroyed. But mountaintops are where God meets people. And here's Jesus, the Son of God, teaching his disciples about the way of God. Face to face. I don't think we ever need to forget that because something glorious has happened in the new covenant that Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the sending of the Spirit to those who have faith in him, the creation of the church, that God is doing something even in that, that we have something that others never had, which is direct access to God. We're able to approach the Father through the Son with the Spirit in our hearts. We get to be instructed by Jesus. We get to glean from it. It's not like we're reading words on a page going, oh, this is kind of neat. Oh, this is kind of neat. This is kind of neat. In fact, uh, in my D group this week, we were talking about what Jesus is saying. We're reading the Gospel of John. We're going through that. And uh, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them there's life. You search the scriptures because you think that's where you're going to find life. But they talk about me. I'm where you find life. And that's an important important distinction to make, isn't it? That, That we don't just become Bible nerds just because it's cool to be able to quote verses, but because it reveals to us our Savior and the way of our Savior, and the heart of our Savior, and the love of our Savior, and and the expectations of our Savior, the way the church is to live, the way we're to care, the work of God for us, that we study, and memorize, and engage, and discuss, and preach, and teach, and learn from the Lord so that we can understand our Savior. And so I want you As much as you're able, and this is kind of hard, but as you're listening to, and I know this is translated, but as you're listening to this, I don't want you to just be like a third party, just kind of watching Jesus talk to the disciples and taking notes on it. I want you to to realize that you're sitting there too, in a sense, because he's teaching those who follow him his ways. So you're not saying, hey, what did he say to the disciples? Let me learn, you know, like you're removed from it. You weren't there in that time and in that place, but Jesus' word is alive and active and his spirit is in you. And the same spirit that was moving in Jesus at that time while he was teaching is alive in us today. And so as we read, we don't want to stand back. Remember last week, God is not distant. 
We want to go right up and go, Lord, I want to hear from you as we go through this. That as we hear this, we're receiving instruction from our Lord about life in Him. And as we get through 3 through 11, we see this. These are the statements of blessedness. But those who hope in God experience the good life. Happy. Blessed. And we can rejoice. Those who hope in God, and it's not just currently, but hoping in God also includes the life that is to come. The kingdom that is to come. The very fact that we have not experienced it all. The Spirit is called a down payment securing our inheritance, which means that we have not fully received all that God has for us, but we are guaranteed it in Him. That there is something that is to come. There's a world that is to come. And as we gaze and look upon that world that is to come, even when we're sorrowful, even when we weep, even as we are being passed up by the world and they're being out-promote, they're out-promoting us, they're out-earning us, they're out-living us, they're out-vacationing us, we can look back and go, man, I have it good. I have it good. That those who hope in God experience the good life because Jesus is teaching the way for his followers to understand. And it's not just this external smile, but it's a totally new and internal way of understanding the things that come at you and how to experience and feel them and rejoice in them. So let's just hear them again. Starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, and others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. So again, we have that word, and we don't say blessed. We have to, when we read the Bible, we have to say blessed. It's just the rule. You say blessed. I want to read happy. I do, I, I do like the translations that say happy uh, because it does kind of mess with our heads. I go, wait a minute, happy? I don't like happy. I mean, happy are these people? Because our kind of worldly understanding of blessing, again, is stuff given to you. Man, how are you? I'm blessed. I have a great family, got a great job, got a great house, got great things. We say that's blessed. But when we read the Bible, we say that's blessed. But happy at least helps move the needle on what's going on here. That this is a a way of being glad, hopeful, and joyful disciples regardless of circumstance because we know our Lord and we know what's to come. A state of being. So a blessed state. 
But this is not the first time we hear the word or the phrase, blessed is someone who lives in a certain way. For example, another type of statement, Psalm chapter 1. The first psalm uses the same type of language that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Sounds like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now listen, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what is Jesus about to do but teach us what the law was really supposed to do for us if we weren't so stinking sinful and unable to do what it said? But his delight's in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. And this is a state of being, isn't it? This is not just a, you're cool. You're like a tree when you're delighting in the law of the Lord. Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers because of your delight in the law of the Lord. You don't get money and power and cool things. You're a tree now, planted by streams of water. You're not going to get, when the storms of life hit, you're not concerned anymore. You have what you need. If there's a drought, doesn't matter. You're by the source. You're receiving from the source. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Another statement of blessedness for those who delight the word of God. So let's just go, and, and this is going to be, again, like last week, skipping rocks a little bit on these statements as we just hear them. Because again, I don't think this is where you get a checklist and go, well, which one am I? Am I a peacemaker? Some of you do have a disposition towards peacemaking, and you know, Ken Sandy's book on the peacemaker is great, and you can read that. And uh, I think Albert Poirot has a book called The Peacemaking Pastor, and that's really good. They all kind of use the same ideas. Peacemaking's a good thing. But you don't just kind of go, well, which one am I? This is for all of us. And all these statements about what is to come are these hopeful, this hopeful anticipation of what God does when he makes all things new. So it's not like, well, I get to see God face to face, but you get the kingdom, right? Like, that's not, that's not how it works. <clears throat> As if some get only some of these things and others only get other things. So we start with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, those who are poor in spirit aren't sitting around in this position of spiritual poverty, poor in spirit, spiritually poor. That wouldn't make sense. If you know Jesus, you're the richest person in the world, you're spiritually alive. You're not dead, so that doesn't kind of line up, does it, that you're spiritually poor? No, the poor in spirit are people who are not dependent upon themselves and their own power. They do not see themselves as all that. They lean on God for their daily needs. They know that they can't get through a single day without Him. They don't have strength in themselves. It's the makeup of those who are citizens of God's world. Where our world would want you to be proud and confident in what you can do, puffed up and strong, Jesus goes, no, no, no. It's the one who the world might call weak who's actually strong. It's the one who looks at you and says, what's up with them? 
they could be making so much money by now. They could be doing it like they could be living life like this. They could be doing that. Look at all that they have. I say, I don't. I need. I need everything I get from the Lord. I need everything I get from Him. And when you live just just completely removed of your own power, it is humbling. But you're also usually no longer a loudmouth. You don't boast. And it's the boastful people who usually kind of get their way. So you just sit there. But remember, as we live poor in spirit, not dependent upon ourselves, but what do we get? The world that's to come. And again, we don't live for this world, do we? We live for a world that is to come. So don't stop being emptied of your own power. Lean on his let him be powerful through you. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are coming to grips with something in this life that has hurt. Now, it could be mourning, as in I'm sad that I've lost family, lost I'm suffering in this world in that sense. I've lost family. I've lost friends. We have those who are ill. <clears throat> I was reading a story recently, a funeral that I... Uh, that our my previous church hosted, wife had died uh, of ALS, and that's just a brutal disease, a brutal disease. Um, and then some years later, and now the husband has been ill, got a virus from the virus, got Guillain-Barre, Guillain-Barre, another brutal disease, and since remarried, and so now we have like brutal disease and mom, and she passes and. Brutal disease and dad, and he, pa- he hasn't passed, no, I'm sorry. Uh, but now he's, uh, he's just in the hospital and not feeling of himself, waiting to, right? You look at that, you go, that's a, I don't want that. I was talking with a friend about it, and she was like, I just feel so bad for his daughters. Lose mom some years ago, not sure what's going on with dad. Like, that's, that's exhausting, isn't it? So it could be that, but, but, but mourning is also mourning over your own sin, the realization that, that you're not living in the way that the Lord would have for you to live and that you just weep over it. But when you enter into states of mourning for your sin or for what's going on in this world and uh, you, you, you're there, and you turn to the Lord, what do you get but comfort? And I've shared this before. This is probably the third time. You're going to hear it a million times uh, by the time the Lord you know, takes me away. But I, I have found that in the funerals that I have done, the most sorrowful and hopeful are the funerals of children. When the parents know the Lord and they trust in the Lord and their newborn dies and I've been in that spot a couple of times. And I don't know what happens, but it is like the Lord just grabs onto that family and sustains them. And I remember one of the ones I did some years ago, and it had finished. And I don't even know how we got through it, looking back. Like, I was a mess. We were all a mess. And then it, people are leaving, and it's kind of done. And I just... I just finally just unraveled after a couple of weeks of 
walking with this family and caring for them and seeing this and getting phone calls. Can you come to the hospital right now? And you're doing those things. And it ended, and I just got undone. And I went up to that dad, and I hugged him. And he was now comforting me (laughs) because I had nothing else. And what is in that moment? People who hope in the Lord, and they are broken over something. But what do they find? But life doesn't bottom out. You still find the Lord there. You still find his comfort there. If you're broken over your sin and you're wearied by this world and you just go to the Lord, you go, I can't keep living in my own power. I'm exhausted by it. And what happens? The Lord's there. And you get him. He's your reward. When you're mourning, the Lord is there. And it's not like, well, how could we be more sad then? Because I need more of God. I just need to be more sad. But I do think as we walk in this life, and again, as citizens of his kingdom, the longer we walk in this life, the more we begin to see things don't line up as God's heart for them might be, right? Then we see sin rampant, not just in us, but just in cultures and in people, and it just keeps going on and piling on and piling on and piling on. The longer we live there, we don't get angry, we get sorrowful. For our own sin, just for the sins of our people, for the sins of our church, and we go, God, can you forgive us? And he does. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the one that's always a little funny, because meek people are gentle and humble and considerate, and they are the ones who get passed up. I mean, this is what we're taught, right? We're taught, like, if you want to get a job, you've got to shake some trees. Like, go get it. Boast in yourself. Talk about your skills. Show them why you're better than someone else. Show them why you're better. Show off. But that's not the way of Jesus. And while those who are noisy, proud, arrogant, sure of themselves, offer some level of confidence to people in this world, it is those who are humble and considerate and recognize the Lord, that get the earth, (laughs) we get to be with the Lord, new heaven and new earth, like no promotion is going to beat what I receive in God when God brings his reward with him. There's no income level that's going to beat what I get with God as I just continue to live my life with God here on this earth. People who don't live in their own power aren't often looked to as leaders, are they? And again, just thinking in our world. And our world does try to come up with language for it. We'll call it Robert Greenleaf Servant Leadership. I'm like, Robert, you didn't start that. Um, You know, like, so we have that. You know, Jesus kind of said, you serve, well, anyways. It's enough about Robert. The world is trying to find ways to say, no, it's those who are servants who really are better leaders. It's those who are caring who are really better leaders. And all this leadership material on like how to be that. I'm like, I know how. 
I know how. But you're not going to like the answer. Because still many things are, live this way so that you can get that thing. Now the world says, if you want the promotion, you've got to smile more and serve people and really have a low power distance. So you've got to kind of flatten that thing out and you know, just be there for everybody. That's what the world says. It's like, okay, so if I want to get ahead, I've got to do it like this now. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, do it like this and let me do what I do. Let me do what I do. And it's funny, and I'll use those who are pursuing jobs and trying to climb ladders and get to certain income levels because I think that speaks to a lot of where we are just in the cycle and how we train our kids and how we think about life. But those who are trying to ascend a ladder to get to a certain spot, it might be if you feel like you've hit something and you just can't break through, the Lord knows that you don't need to keep succeeding. You just be content and be glad and joyful right where you are. Because it is the meek who inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In verse 6, we learn about these people. I don't know how you spend your day or how you discipline yourself or how you think about your life, but you know, whether you want to get up early or eat fewer calories or exercise more often or be nicer, whatever you, things you try to do to discipline yourself, my question is going to be this. Do you actually discipline yourself to live rightly before God? When you think about how you spend your time, when you think about how you pursue things, when you think about you're planning out your schedule and you realize that you have actually scheduled no aspect of your life to consider the condition of your own heart, to be before God, to read his word, to pray, to talk to other believers about what is going on, that you have not actually hungered and thirsted for those things. Now, I don't just mean hunger and thirst for righteousness uh, positionally. Those who hunger and thirst for the declaration of righteousness that you get in Christ. Because you don't keep hungering and thirsting for a once, one-time declaration. Right? It's not, you're not going to lose your salvation. So if, if Jesus were only talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness that one time, <clears throat> okay, you are satisfied. But for a Jewish person, righteousness was not just right standing, again, but right living. We saw this in James. Not just right standing, but right living. To hunger and thirst to live in a way that God would have you live in this world. Is that an aim of ours? And when we live there, we find that there's such satisfaction in obeying God and not obeying man. Following his ways, not following the world's ways. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful receive mercy. Remember in James, sounds familiar in James, just uh, judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who has not shown mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. James sounds a lot like his brother. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown, shall receive mercy. They're able to be kind and gracious. They can forgive They're not ready to bring retribution or anger to a situation, but they sit in hope of seeing God do something greater. They live mercifully. The pure in heart, remember the psalm, how will we get clean hands to pure heart? External cleansing, internal cleansing, the pure in heart see God. 
They're regularly open with their sins and they understand the forgiveness that comes from God. They battle with their sin and much more than that outward piety like a Pharisee, they want inward purity. You can discipline yourself to look religious. You cannot discipline yourself to be right with God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They see God. And he is going to confront the teachings that you hear in the coming weeks. He's going to confront those teachings. That it's not your external look. He's actually going to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And you can hear the crowd going, more than, i got to know more Bible than them? i got to be more disciplined than them? No shot. The peacemakers are called sons of God. Those who are pure in heart, walk with God, they become peacemakers because they live at peace with God and they want to see others live at peace with God. You know, there's some people you don't bring to the table to try and make a decision. You're not going to go, hey, you know who we should get? The guy that just totally blows the meeting up. That's who we need to have here. Right? They just gaslight it. Let's get them in there and let's see if we can get this thing done. The peacemakers are those who want to see people live at peace with one another and people live at peace with God. They don't settle for, hey, are we okay? Yeah, we're good. And you're like, no, we aren't. No, we aren't. I know we're not good. Because you wouldn't just give me that flippant, no idea, we're good. Or like the text message, just the letter K. Like, how hard is it to put an O in front of the K? Uh, but it's really hard for us. So you just text back a K when you're like, yeah, we're good. Like, that's not shorthand for anything except passive aggressiveness. It's hard, though, and messy and painful to pursue peace in our relationships and to seek and point others to God. It's really messy. Because honestly, people just don't want to do it. They don't want to pursue peace. It kind of feels good to be angry and try and get vindicated. Peacemakers are sons of God. Why? Because, I mean, think about it. They're doing the work of the Son of God, the same kind of thing, right? They belong, we belong to Him. We reflect Jesus. Ephesians, He Himself is our peace. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's made the two one, Jew and Gentile one. He has brought them together in his body. And so now, right, the application becomes live at peace with one another. Because Jesus has already done it for you. You have peace with God and you have peace here, right? You can call it vertical peace and horizontal peace. Like that, because we have it, we're right with God, we should live rightly with one another. And then we get to persecution. Because when you live this way, you look weird. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. This is what they did to the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> Jesus does not communicate persecution as something that you should run toward and look for. Like, where can I go to be persecuted today? That's not what he's saying. <clears throat> but as you live for him and do his work, you will find the world does not look kindly on those who live for the Lord. And I don't mean that to be like it's an us versus them, right? Because it's really the Lord's battle. It's not my battle. 
I'm not, I'm not going to try and do some type of work that's already his to be done. So to live as a citizen with him, in life with him, it would be expected to be treated differently. Something ha- that happens as you live as a citizen of a different kingdom. When you get mocked for not going along with something you know you shouldn't do, or when you take a stand at school, when your friends want you to break a rule, when you proclaim the name of Jesus in places where the world says he is not welcome, and you lose life or limb or status or friends or family because you have said Jesus is alive. It says that's what people who speak for me do. They will suffer. They'll be persecuted. Those who live knowing God's rules and ways will suffer, but they have a heavenly reward that is far greater than any suffering that they will experience on this earth. So I don't have much more for you but this. And it's more a plea than anything, which is let's let God define for us what a good life is. And stop letting the world tell us. Let's let him show us what's better. Let's let him show us the right attitude, the right heart, the comfort that comes through mourning, making peace, pursuing right relationships. Let's let him do that work because it's so much better when we live as citizens of his world. We already are in him, but sometimes it feels a little bit like we're shadow agents for the world. Instead, let's just let him, and as we go through this series, let's let him show us. And let's open our hearts. Let's go, God, you can, you can do this through me. I can't do it. Now let's pray together for serious, personal transformation that results itself in <clears throat> a church family looking incredibly bizarre in this world and us being totally fine with it. Totally fine with it. 